Hello, and welcome to the Property Solopreneur podcast, a show for property investors and developers who want to build and grow their own profitable businesses. I'm sharing with you my decades of property experience and interviewing many other successful property people who are happy to share their varied and priceless knowledge freely. Business doesn't need to be hard and nor do you need to be lucky. But as a certified strategist, I know you need a plan to work to. And a good start is by listening to other people's successes and failures. Why reinvent the wheel? This allows us to have a more in-depth knowledge of the wider property world. Welcome to this week's episode of The Property Solopreneur. And on previous episodes, I had said I was going to record episodes with people who are developing and pl- doing planning gain as their way of working in property. And my guest today, Jerome Royce, is one such a person. Now, I could babble on for ages about him, but in fact, I think I'll leave it up to him. Well, welcome, Jerome, to The Property Solopreneur. And thank you very much for coming on this morning. Now, for anyone who's not found you yet on social media and seen any of your videos or anything, who are you and what do you do? Thank you for having me on, Rachel. It's a great honour to be coming on your podcast. I've been following it for a while. So I'm Jerome Roy. I am a property developer and a property development educator. I've been in the business since 1994. Uh, I haven't been developing for that amount of time, been developing since 2008. And people can find me on Instagram at Property Planning Game, Facebook at Property Planning Game. Uh, I have another website, sensitivedevelopments.co.uk, which is the land and development arm of the company. And uh, always looking to hear from like-minded people. Absolutely. And so you say there happily, I haven't been doing this long. But actually, the reality of, of people who come in and out of property, having developed since 2008, actually is quite a long time. And also that that's all quite a difference in the market. And not only finance has changed and land has changed, but the rules have changed. So what is it about doing developments that really just sets you alight and compared to just doing ordinary vitalettes or something? Yeah, I find it much more intellectually stimulating. The margins, I believe, and the scalability in development and planning gain are greater over a shorter period of time. I've never been one to do things that are straightforward. That's just how I've lived my life, not just my career. I mean, I basically started this whole property process back to front because the way that you're told to do it, even though no one told me this, is that you do your buy to lets. You get all that going, you get your passive income, you get your portfolio. And when you've gained a bit of knowledge and you made mistakes and you've done the smaller stuff, you then move on to the stuff that we do today. I've started it the other way around and started with the land and the planning gain and office to resi and permitted developers and straight into it, basically. But that's to a certain degree, that you know, that's obviously the way your mind works. And one of the things that frustrates me about property is that there is this, it's become general acceptance that there is a pathway, but there isn't because we're all different and we all see things differently and we enter differently. And so developing starts with, well, how do you start finding somewhere to, to build? How do you do it? So the beginning of the process, as you correctly say, is finding the opportunity. You note that I don't call it finding a deal. It's not a deal until you've transacted on it, as in exchange, completed, own it, secured it, option, whatever it is. So direct to vendors is a huge part of our strategy. 
yep. has been for a long time. Personal contacts, because we've been at it a while, people do pick the phone up to you eventually and say, do you want to have a look at this? I guess genuinely off-market, very mm-hmm. cynical of that expression, this whole off-market thing you see on LinkedIn. Yes. What? Something's off-market you see on Instagram. That's not off-market. And agents, we use uh, MailChimp. Yep. Send out 500 emails every six weeks to 500 agents in specific counties that we target. It's a numbers game. But absolutely. So you've got, you're not just blanket covering the whole of the UK. You know roughly where you're looking to work, honing in, dominating your ground. Yeah, because I believe you can only make money in property development and planning game in areas with a sufficiently high enough GDV, pounds per square for new build residential, with the current interest rate and development costs and construction costs. There is a point that you have to look at what is the minimum I actually want to make. You know, people are running around, I think, doing deals that are not making much money, but that's their problem. We're here to try and tell them otherwise and educate them. And and I think that is very much a case of um, many people focus completely on the property side. And actually, it's a business. This is what I bang my drum on all the time. It is a business. Even if you're not physically doing a build, you've got costs. So you've got to make sure that your business can keep going. And so you have, you know, you've just highlighted the fact that you are sending out invitations to find a director vendor. Once you've, you've got responses, then what do you do? Is this a moment for your cups of tea or is there something more to it than that? So typically the process is as follows. 250 letters a month and it's done county by county, not town or city at a time. It's a county by county. I think our systems are robust enough to be able to do that because they've been honed over a period of time. You'll get calls. 5% will translate into a call. A call is a lead. It's a cold lead at that point. You'll then have to work out who's serious or not. And then you have to script how you speak to people. The art of communication If you're trying to get a landowner on board on a piece of land that you think has got prospects to make them money and make yourself money, let's not forget, greed kills deals. Yes. And I noticed that, you know, one of your things has said is you've got to, you know, with with landowners of whatever shape and size, it has to work for them. And so is that where you start, trying to understand what they want? Try and understand who they are and what's going on. A lot of it is generational wealth. A lot of it is landed gentry, aristocracy, blue bloods, whatever you want to call them. We kind of know how it works by looking at land ownership, but that's how England is. It's very much like that. The generational wealth or the people that bought the sites post-World War II or pre-World War II, that their grandkids are not interested in running their businesses from there those are the ones that are very interesting right now. Yes, and of course, so, you know, th- th- since that time, things have changed. So I know someone who sold a farm and built Milton Keynes. You know, you don't. You see, that's the kind of thing that falls into a developer's hands once in a you know in, in a generation type thing. But it is there are now areas around big um, cities, aren't there? You mentioned earlier before we came on talking about Essex and major train lines going into London and things like that, where. It's no longer great for farming, so they are selling. And so you are now meeting up with that landowner 
how do you how do you sort of bridge the gap between you, who's the property developer, who therefore must be an evil so and so, and the nice kind of landowner? So I think what's important for everyone listening is not to run around like a headless chicken thinking you can do every deal. <laughs> you only learn this with bitter experience, shall I say. So meeting a landowner doesn't take place until I've established there is a deal to be done. And in fact, in the majority of cases, the terms have been agreed because a lot of them will say, when you're coming to meet me, now I'm in Manchester today. Now, I'm not going to go down to Surrey tomorrow on a whim in the hope that the landowner is going to do a deal with me. It just doesn't work like that. So get all your desktop analysis in place and then understand their appetite because a lot of people window shop. We yep. all know that. We work in one of the biggest window shopping industries out there, apart from probably high-end retail, yeah. right? Yes, yes. And people don't look at it like that, do they? No, I, I um, landowners, it's very emotional for them. Yes, and they because might- Because that might be all they have. Yeah, it might be something that the rest of the family aren't that keen on either. And and they don't have the money or the expertise to take five acres through planning on a field and wait three years. They don't know how to do it. Yeah. Most people don't know how to do it. People think they know how to do it, but it's a science. Yes. And that was one of the things, because there is definitely a difference between being interested in a piece of land that hasn't got planning and being interested in a piece of land that has, isn't there? You obviously have an eye for it. How do you start to move forward on a piece of land, as you say, which hasn't got planning permission? Because it's still a bit of a wish, isn't it, at that point? Yeah. So I, I think just to give people some context, that you make your money when you buy and not when you sell. And that applies to every asset that you ever secure buy uh, in your whole career. Buying without planning is the only way we do it because I don't need to pay someone else for the expertise I already have to take their margin out of the deal. I, I'm not interested in that. How do you know it has prospects? By using Google. That is literally Google Earth, one of the greatest inventions in history. <laughs> for someone like us, it's up there with electricity and the light bulb, okay? That is amazing because most people would never think of that. And what it does is you look from the sky and you can see very quickly what's around it. Is it too far away from the main settlement of the town or village or city? Or is it right next to it? Is it the next field off the grid? Is that going to be the next area that's going to be regenerated? But Google, within literally two or three minutes, you will get a picture of whether you should even look at it. Yes. And of course, I'm, I, I also wear another hat because I'm a parish councillor. So I, re I do receive uh, applications coming in from planning permission and I have defeated developers uh, at county level, which we upheld at appeal as well. So, you know, I've, I've seen the other side and it's really fascinating. There's another reason I was so keen to talk to you today. And it is about making sure that because you, you as the developer, you wanted to succeed is choosing the right development in the right place, isn't it? And that comes with experience to a certain degree, doesn't it? So apart from looking at Google, of course, life's not as easy as Google, right? Even though people seem to Google everything, including their, including the health conditions. Then after that, we have created our own checklist. It's not industry secrets. Is is it flood risk zone two or three? Yeah. Is it green belt? If it's brownfield, do you think it's been contaminated? Is someone going to build 500 houses next door, therefore destroying the demand for that area? 
those are basically the next stage. Yes, and then you know you've so you've got that all in place. You therefore, you know, if you've got if you've got the landowner on side, you know it's a winner, and you've gone to planning, and it's all happened. Do you have in-house planning app people, or do you use regional ones? So we'll use a we'll use a national planning consultant, one of the directors of sensitive developments is a planning expert who's won public inquiries on Greenbelt and God knows what else over the decades, very early into this, probably 25 years ago. And we use Techno King planning consultants who have a number of offices who will give us their initial opinion. But what I must stress to the listeners, we're not sending them every opportunity we get because otherwise you lose your reputation. Yes. Because that's all we have. We only have our rep in our name. When you're sitting in a meeting, Rachel, or whatever your line of work is, your mentees or whatever, and they're doing DD on you, why should Rachel mentor us? All you've got is your name. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. That's literally all we have until we come to the end of our career. And it's the same when you're speaking to a planning consultant. I don't want them turning around going, he's sending me these these opportunities. They're complete rubbish. Yes, because you, people have an expectation also of the sort of things that you're going to do. And so now that's that's all happening. How, um, particularly people who are just doing the first few um, and have caught the bug, how do you source funding? Is it the same as doing ordinary property or is, fu- is development funding specialist? So let's talk about the potential deal structures because how it differs from the investment world is that you can secure a site on a conditional basis as opposed to unconditional, which is what you're buying your, your 150 grand house in Stoke for. Yep. Okay. That's an unconditional deal. It's how you buy the house you live in. Yep. That's how the majority of investment transactions are in the UK. Conditional deals mean you're securing a site subject to getting a planning permission that you've agreed you're going to go for with the landowner with a pre-agreed price on the contract. Right. And the financial exposure is reduced. So therefore, let's say I'm going to put a deposit down of £15,000 to secure one acre, which is just smaller than an adult football pitch, to give people context. So an acre. An acre, yes. 15 houses, 40 flats over four floors, depending on where it is, right? Yep. So I'm going to secure that with the lander. I'm going to give them £15,000. So let, let's like walk and talk through this. So that that's my hurt money. Yes. I probably have that, if not a mate or a family member, if you started out, has that. Mm-hmm. Yep. Then your next question is, how am I going to fund the planning application on an acre of land that might cost £50,000? Right. Because I haven't got that. If I'm starting out, I've got my buy-to-let portfolio because this is the pathway. I've got a bit of equity, but I've really, I'm not liquid. Yeah. Because this is how it works, right? Everything gets recycled into each deal. I'm going to pick the phone up to an investor. These are ordinary people that may or may not have property experience, but are still only getting 3% on a high interest Shawbrook savings account for a year. It's a bond. That's all these savings accounts are. They're a, it, it's a year. It's how they're, they're structuring it, right? To get around the high interest rate. I'm going to pick the phone up to someone and say, I want to, I, I need 50,000 pounds. And I'm going to offer them a return on that money. And how long will you be for? Depending on how long I think it's going to take me to get planning and get in and out of the deal. Right. 
because you've got two different strategies. You want to do the planning gain and sell it to a developer, or you want to get the planning gain, then do a refinance because you've got planning, you can fund it mainstream. Yes. And then go and build it and raise development finance, or you trade it on giving the investor their money back. You've got their return on investment. The return on investment called ROI depends on what you want to make on a deal, how old you are, and how expensive your lifestyle is. Yes, it is. It is, I'm afraid. It is a piece of string, isn't it? Very variable. Absolutely. And do you build out every single project you come across or do you pick and choose? Um, if someone's offering me a ridiculous profit on a, upon receipt of planning, it would be foolish to go and build that out. Because let's be realistic with the listeners. New build construction, don't know how many people have done it on, in your audience on your platforms, yeah. is completely different to converting a building. Yes, it is. Very, very different. Yes. Although the skills are, are so similar, there are many more pitfalls. And I, I might be wrong here, but also time is a bigger factor, isn't it? The thing that's against us as we get older, Rachel, is time. <laughs> yes. Okay? Yeah. I'm actually starting to get worried about time. I've never looked at it before. It's <laughs> been this year. Yeah. And also, I think most of us don't realise as well is that things can stop. Uh, let's assume we're going on to build it out. It's not, it's not a guarantee that you're going to ha hit that end figure of, of you know, GDV because there are so many things that can change. The market can change, but not only that, little, little things around a build can delay it, particularly the antis or the nimbies or the people who are living adjacent to a site can cause real problems. Have you ever come across that? So I saw your post on drainage. I actually looked at that before I came on this. And so what's in the ground can end up ruining your deal. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. If you don't know, I'm talking contamination, I'm talking drainage, I'm talking utilities, all that sort of stuff. That's time. Yes. We know what happened during COVID. The owner-occupier market went berserk, but Costs went berserk as well. Yes, it did. And and people assume somehow that costs are, con you know, you, you decide how much it's going to be and that's what it's going to stay. But they, you know, even something as simple as a piece of plasterboard went through the roof, didn't it? So even though, so we were building new build in COVID, even though we had a fixed price design and build contract, mainstream development finance, all that stuff, it still doesn't stop the main contractor picking the phone up to you and say, well, actually it's now costing 30 grand more. Yeah. Okay. So people, even though prices went up maybe 15, 20%, there was no off the offset was the increase in construction costs. It cancelled each other out, contrary yeah. to what people may or may not tell you on social media and hide the facts. Yeah. Well, I, I had I had builds that I was involved in going through at that time and I was fascinated by, you know, some movement of what things were going to be and how they finished up because price was very critical to make sure that the developer could get out the other end and still make a profit. And, you know, that was invisible. And certainly I noticed that during COVID, because people were at home more, they noticed building more. And so therefore they protested more. Certainly one or two buildings that I was involved with had very vocal and difficult neighbours who protested about things that normally would go unnoticed. But that it basically stopped work whilst everything had to be sorted out and everyone had to be nice. And, and it's little things like that that people who've never done a development before don't realise can happen. It is 
it is all these little things around and about that make a difference. And also other people's attitude to what, for instance, is green. Um, a lot of people talk to me about green development. What does that mean to you, green development? Yeah, so it's quite interesting what's going on at the moment because it looks like the Tories are pushing back on the whole net zero agenda. There'll be more announcements in the King's speech in the uh, beginning, well, this, I think next week. Yes. 7th of November, I think. What it means to me, you've got different ways of looking at it. For a developer, you have something called Biodiversity Net Game, BNG, okay? Yeah. Which is basically the government and the councils want the wildlife and the habitat to be in a better condition than it was before you developed. And there's a 10% offset requirement in your new build development. I am all for wildlife because the human race has destroyed a lot of it. You know, things like foxes in gardens in central London is because they've got nothing to eat. Yeah. Foxes. Yeah. Right? You know, it's all connected to this whole problem. So that's BNG, which they've now put on hold for a bit, but councils still want it. Let's talk about a green home, an eco home. Yes. It's building with sustainable materials and making the carbon footprint energy efficient. In theory, reducing your heating costs in perpetuity and building it in a more responsible way than probably the houses we live in. Stuff like passive house is a type of house. People might have heard of it. When you're building your own house, your opportunity to go green is there. That that's when you're able to do it because you're going to live in it for the rest of your life. And what sort what sort of things actually make it green? What it know? could be the type of materials, it could be the type of roof, it could be a green roof, it could be the electric charging points. Maybe you're using an electric vehicle. The heating systems within the house are going to be energy efficient boilers, probably not your traditional uh, Potterton or Valent boiler that buy to let investors use. Right. The, the type of windows, the type of timber, the stud partition, it's all sorts of ways, but all this stuff costs money. People forget that. This is my point, because as you rolled off this list, I'm thinking, well, you know, this all sounds absolutely lovely. And I'm sitting in a house made of straw and mud with a, a straw roof. And it was built in 1490. And it's, you know, it, I can tell you now it's really simple to mend. You just take them all down and make some more, more mud. Um, you know, so building materials have changed over the years, but all the new stuff that's coming in, and some of it is very exciting. I, you know, I, some of the companies I've worked with are, have been really on the cutting edge of stuff. It all comes with a price ticket, doesn't it? So is that actually, is a greenhouse actually still going to come out at the same sort of price at the lower end of the market? Or is this something that we can only aspire to if we're spending big bucks? Okay, so I don't think for a SME developer, it's scalable, building a eco-development. From what we see, we look at it, we get advised on it. Then we're going into the realms of modular homes. Oh, yeah, yes. You know, Urban Splash have pulled out. Legal and General have pulled out. It's never really happened over here. It could be lack of education. I think if you're building your own house and you've got a blank check and you're the high end of the market and you're a self-made, very wealthy person, you can do it. At the low end or middle end, I don't think it is achievable. There's two. There's two, yes. The bills are too big, and yes, you are going to have the ability to have cheaper fuel costs. 
for how long? And will you, you know, as for some of us, we'll never see our return on our own investment, really, will we? Because we, we'll be dead before we get there. Um, but what what are the the very least kind of green stuff that we have got to look for when we're developing so that we have some credibility? Because I don't think you can build now in the old-fashioned way and just go, oh, I'm not doing anything remotely green. Because I think people like the, the concept, don't they? So I think the heating systems, we can be more energy efficient. There's been a lot of chat and pushback on the energy performance certificates. It all feeds into that. Yep. It's too expensive for landlords to go in and make good and get a correct energy efficient certificate in their homes. They've pushed back on that. So I think the heating and the lighting system, I think, is doable. Stuff like a green roof, yep, relatively inexpensive. We've had planning feedback recently where they want us to keep bees on the roof. Really? What fun. That That's amazing. And actually, something I'd like to do is create my own honey. Yes. Well, <laughs> that's a bit of a win-win, isn't it, really? <laughs> Absolutely. But it is, even down to the fact that, you know, having uh, uh, one small development near me that I've been involved in, they're having to take the water off site in a slightly different way and create wildlife ponds and before it starts to feed into the system because we've got to, especially with the way that climate change is affecting the rain at the moment, There's more, we've got to contain it before it starts to whiz down the becks and flood the bottom of the villages and things. So anything that can be put into place is good, but it comes at a price. Very much so. So over your years of actually developing, have you seen a radical change in what people want to buy as opposed to what we feel we have to build? Not really, no. No, because it I, 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 their I, wallets, don't they? At the end of the day, as was explained to me by my business partner in the who's in his 70s, very recently, when I said that I keep on waking up at 4 a.m., and he said to me that it's all about money, you know. And I kind of knew that instinctively, but hearing it from someone that's much older than me, that's been around longer, the buying profile is all about money. Do I see structural change on that, on sustainable development in our lifetime? Not much, no. Gosh, that, that, you know, that, that is perhaps not what we all think, though, is it? Because we are being led to believe that we're very different from previous generations and we want to, everything is going to be far more sustainable and everything else. And the other thing that I think people were aware of was the government did bring in these rules and regulations about how you could develop and not be creating a problem environmentally which in some way just made some of the sites dry up. You couldn't, you couldn't build in some places, could you? Were you affected by that? Not directly, but developers are very cynical, Rachel. <laughs> in fact, people in property are cynics. <laughs> I, well, okay? we we're dealing with money. I don't know whether that's an age thing or whether it's property. What we realise is that it's another tax on developers. You know, I don't want to burst anyone's bubble here, but we're in it to make money and create homes people want to live in that are going to stand the test of time. Do we think a new build house is going to stand the test of time compared to your Elizabethan thatched dwelling, for example? Yes. Of course not. No. You're living in something that's, what, uh, 750 years old or whatever it is, right? Yeah. Okay. That's, there's never going to be anything built like that again. No. It's like all these Georgian buildings, right? They will be here in perpetuity. 
when we're long gone. Round the corner from the office in Manchester is the most sustainable office building in the UK, grade one energy efficiency. Can't remember the exact name of the term. Uh, you know, Bream, Bream, you know, the building regulations, energy efficiency, platinum level. Have a guess how many years they've been building it for, and it's still not ready. Oh, what, 10? 10, 5 years? I reckon it's been going four and a half years. So that's that's not that's not sustainable for everybody. And that's being built by a huge name developer, Bit of Homes England money. They've had a pre-let on half of it to so a major blue chip law firm. God knows where they're operating from up here. And every time I drive past it, typically at the weekend, it's literally watching paint dry. That's not going to help us because one thing we do know is that we need more homes and more have got to be built. And this comes back to time. It's not just the cost to implement these platinum level energy ratings, which is all very responsible and it all looks great. We've got the most eco-friendly building in England, right? Great. I'm all for it. But the time is what costs you the money. Yes. And you know that with the best will in the world, you can't just go on making everything perfect and being being able to sort of hit targets. But by people who've brought laws in who have, may never have actually been involved in either uh, buying a house in some instances or building it or funding it, so don't know the ins and outs of it all. Um, and that also brings us back to the fact that. Um, Property, you need more than one exit, don't you? And I'm, I was very struck by some of the things you've been putting out recently about the fact that you can't just focus on on just the deal, so to speak. You've got to realise that you've got to adapt to the market and you've got to have some exits. It, that's, that's an important thing for people to remember, isn't it? I think on a very simplistic level, let's kind of be as straightforward as possible. An exit could be... You sell off the requisite number of new build units to pay off the development finance with the bank. So at that point, it's unencumbered. Yep. Nothing to stop you keeping three or four of the houses or the flats. You do a buy-to-let refinance on those, rent them out, hold them. That's an exit. Those are exit strategies. Another simplistic exit strategy could be you could get a supported housing provider. I mean, we basically built bungalows, which are very attractive in that whole supported living, disability, that sort of market had discussions, didn't go down this route, of well-known providers in that space talking about that we'll take all of them and we'll give you a 15-year lease, but we want you to do X, Y, and Z. And when you do the maths on it, it might not work. And remember, you've, you've still got to pay off the bank. Yes, you have. Yes, yes, absolutely. And that, of course, say not only have you got this exit, because I, I worked, I was building in the middle of the credit crunch, which was an interesting moment. We did get through it quite happily, but my word, it was a whew, moment. <laughs> um, and of course, many people have forgotten because they've never worked in it that interest rates are not always at rock bottom. And, you know, have you found the sort of people's appetite for working has changed now that they're slightly worried about interest rates or are they just carrying on regardless? Um, I think what's happened to interest rates has been very important for the long-term health of the property sector. I'm actually, I, I believe it's peaked. You and I are from a generation that I get slapped down on social media for putting stuff out. When I was an estate agent in 1994, it was 14%. And then you get slapped down with the comments of these people that were 14%, they don't know what they're doing, right? But actually, the credit crunch, the rate was around 5%, right? Yes, it was, yes. So effectively, 06, 07, 
beginning of 08 was the all-time high. It will never be repeated. I was working in the city in property, right? City fringe, Shoreditch, Square Mile, people were paying money for stuff that was just wasn't real. And that was 5%. And what's happened over the last, so what is it? Let's call it 14 and a half years. Well, this second second half of 2022, this all changed, right? Is that we got real again. The money was no longer free. And that means that you've got to do more work, doesn't it? You've got to be more aware of so many more things. And actually, it just makes you more professional as well, doesn't it? I think Rothschild once said, when you see the amateurs in the market, it's time to get out. (laughs) Well, I should think, yes. Because that, yes, they will buy anything, won't they? Yeah, and you know, lots of people have done that. And yeah, on, on you know, on on the house we live in, we've refinanced, we've refinanced something else. We are paying more, but this is a long game. Yes. You know, we're in this for our entire career. It's not get rich quick. It's not how people portray. No, and you know, one one of the things I always like to ask people is, you know. Is there, is there a project you're most proud of that you just go, so glad I did that? Before COVID picked up uh, a brownfield site off Travis Perkins, brownfield in Kent, commuter town near London on HS1. Right. The first high-speed link bill, which connects that whole Kent and Ashford and Mar- you know, down toward Margate and Ramsgate. And got planning on it. Local developer came along, offered a huge ROI on it. It was a 15-month turnaround. I do believe people, all your listeners, the golden ticket is getting a planning consent because you can go where you want with that. You can build it. You can trade it. You can refinance it. Yes. Uh, Well, there we are. Multiple options, multiple exits. And those are exit strategies. It's not just the type of people that are going to live in it or who your provider is. Those are the exits, correct? But that did extremely well, yeah. So that's always one that you'll go, yeah, Canada did that. And also, you know, it's it was in Kent and it was it was from a, a company. Again, people forget the companies get rid of land, don't they? Well, Travis Perkins owned 423-year-olds. Yes, <laughs> which in nice places. And, and what's more, all of it's brownfield, which you can basically develop on because the government want you to build on brownfield. So that's like a really good takeaway for everyone listening to this. Yes, it isn't just a case of floating around. You've just got to use your brain. And does have you got one of those nightmares that just floats into your mind every time you think, you know, when people go, this is so easy. It's like falling off a log. Developing is you know, guaranteed you're going to make money. So as part of that deal, there was another site opposite, okay? So part of the same transaction, and I got planning permission for 31 units, a bit of flood risk, mitigated it. The parking was going to be where flood risk zone two was because you couldn't build on it. And what I didn't realize, because I didn't read the utilities report properly, was that there was a live sewer running under the site. Now, when you get planning permission, believe it or not, all the planning officers that the council are interested in is planning policy. They're not interested what's in the ground or what's running through it. That's not their job. So when I got a call late on a Friday night from the agent for the buyer that was already lined up with the benefit of planning to say we've got a problem, that was a really expensive problem. The sewer had to be diverted. I didn't know you could do that. It's called a section 185. So you know how in this game, like the beauty of it, right, is that you don't know anything till you do it. Yes. 
Yeah. Oh, something new to learn. How exciting. So everything I now do, because Brownfield, because Greenfield, you know, nothing's been on it. So there's, there's no sewer there, right? On Brownfield, I look at that first thing now. Is there, a, is there a sewer running under it? So you basically get a sewer diversion certificate from the water supplier, which is called an S185. And guess who bears the cost of that? Even if you're not building it out, it comes off your bottom line because the developer buying the site with planning has got to do it. Yes. Right? So, but you know, it's one of those chicken and egg things. Without doing that, you can't sell on and you can't do anything. So, but yeah. it's a really good thing. Well, yes, it is a bit of a nightmare, I have to say, but it is well, it is possibly one of the most important things you ever learned, really. It was one of those moments, you know, when your stomach goes over, right? Because <laughs> it still happens. You yeah. Know, you still get, yeah, I, I still get that. When something comes up, I think people need to realise that this is really scientific. There's the, it, the thing about building is it doesn't just happen on the four inches on the top of the soil, does it? it it's everything below. I mean, I remember the first thing I built, we had the map of what excitements were under the ground, but we didn't know it was A, we had a coal seam that came out because I was building in Stoke. And as the, the metal... Uh, barrel of the digger went in we had sparks flying and we nearly set fire to a coal seam which is a known hazard in that area but we were supposed to be not having that 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 took us a while to sort and then we as we continued when we got that problem solved we continued to dig and the digger brought up a gas main that shouldn't have been running across that particular plot again Everything had to stop whilst we got that sorted out. So um, I think it doesn't matter how many times you've done something, there's always something new to learn and always something new to worry about. Otherwise, it would be very simple. And for those people who've never done anything before, start simple. Would you say start simple, start small, or just go straight in at shard level? Forget it. <laughs> so what we do is people that are experienced do what we do. This is not startup stuff, right? This is not... I don't know anything about property. I'm 23 years old. I've got 30 grand. Yep. It's not, right? The reality of it is, I think a bit differently. You know, that question you've asked is, should you start small? Convention will say yes. My thought process is no. It's it's the same skill set to get planning and build 10 houses as it is to build two. Yep. And therefore, the only difference is you've got to borrow a bit more money and just, be, just make sure that you're buying at the right price. But you know, can people make money by building two houses in this market? Probably not, unless you're selling them to footballers. Yep. And you're at that high-end, ultra-luxury, new-build detached stuff, which is the realms of people that have been at it a while. Yes, yes, because they understand absolutely everything. Yes. So you're, so basically, if you have a developing mindset, which I think is different from people who just want to start going tinkering with houses and making some small cash pods, then you've got to, before you even start, go, if I'm going to do this, let's do the maths on whether two will work, 10 will work. Therefore, I've got to be totally and utterly committed to what I'm doing and then actually take action and do the stuff because it won't happen on its own. Yeah. And that's where being around the right people and having the right team comes into it. Personal recommendations, being around people that are doing it, probably training. Yeah. You know, training didn't exist when you and I were starting out. No. And it's and to be quite honest, I, I don't I don't have a problem with training because I you know as I say I do it and you do it because anything that can shortcut your learning time has to be a good thing and you learn other people's mistakes as well as their successes and that makes you a better you understand more doesn't it? Um, so I still secretly 
wish there was training 20 years ago because it would have saved 10 years of my life. <laughs> Do you really think that? I, I, the way I did it was I made a lot of mistakes. I held onto the coattails of older men typically to try and be around them. I never really knew when I was an estate agent how these developers and traders made money. It took me years to figure that out, why they were calling me up every day and offering me brown envelopes to get them deals. Yeah. Never understood it at all, how they were doing it, the refurbs on flats in London, whatever. Do I wish I'd been trained? Yeah, I sometimes think to myself, you know, before the days of YouTube, right? Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't regret any decisions because I don't think we can in life, professional or personally, otherwise we're stuck. But yeah, sometimes I think to myself, you know, when I'm training someone on our two-day intensive, I'm thinking to myself, you know, they're actually really fortunate. Yes. Yeah, because one thing people have when the ability to, when they go on a training course, is ask the question that will make them think this is for me or this isn't for me. And I always say the best training course I ever went on was a day's course about generational renting. And it was a brilliant course. Loved it. Came out of that going, there's absolutely no way I'm going to do that. It's so not my skill set and I don't find it interesting. Fascinating watching someone else do it, but it's not for me. And that was still in my mind one of the best days I ever did. And what what sort of, when you, because you've seen lots of people go through, what is the one thing that most people say when they've done training about development? I think the first thing is before people get trained, it has to be explained to them you're wasting your money unless you're going to implement it. So that's the first thing, okay, which is why we have these discovery calls to establish appetite. If you're working full time in a law firm in London, you're earning big money and, you can, and you've got the brains to do it, you know, that sort of profile, you haven't got time to do it. And then after that, it's the implementation of it. And the only thing that stands in people's way is one thing. It's their mindset and their mentality. And that actually can't be taught. It's within them so they could hear what's going on and then just go and do it. Yeah. You know, I, 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 I think about that with my own kids. Do you have kids yourself? I do. Yes. One is, one is an estate agent. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And is that something they enjoy? Oh, country houses. Absolutely love it. Absolutely. Right. Right. Yes. Okay. But I, you know, it is, it is one of those things, you know, making them go and do stuff. Doesn't matter what you do, you've just got to throw yourself in and do it to the nth degree, haven't you? And property is something that you can't do half-hearted. And it's about, I think, the greatest skill that the younger generation, I don't like sound like this old folk you need to develop is patience. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Jerome, for spending time recording this with me today. I'm sure that my listeners are going to have a huge number of nuggets. I'm just counting them off. There's another nugget. There's another nugget. And that's what people want. You know, it's just something they can pluck out of their listening and go and do and, and realise that they're not the only one, perhaps, that are feeling like this or wanting to do something. So thank you very much. Thank you for having me. It's been thoroughly enjoyable. And I hope someone has got something from it because that's what it's about. If one person can get something out of this, then it's worked. Fantastic. And all your things will be in the show notes. So thank you. Thank you for listening to The Property Solopreneur with me, Rachel Troughton. If you've enjoyed this episode, do hit subscribe and kindly leave a review and share this podcast with anyone you think it would help on their property journey. If you'd like to get hold of my guide for building a successful property business, go to racheltroughton.com forward slash checklist. We only live one life. So let's get your dream a reality through building a profitable property business.